Well, we have not spoken all that much on the larger flow of things in the Gospel of Luke. Among other things, we've not been speaking as much about themes as perhaps uh, we did in the Gospel of John. But we certainly have come to one of the major themes of the Gospel of Luke, and that is the cost of discipleship. It's a major theme. It's one of the aspects of this Gospel that immediately sets it apart from the others, it is, for instance, the only gospel that includes what is in Luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? That is unique to Luke, and that well summarizes this particular emphasis. It's not utterly absent from the other Gospels, of course, but it is a particular emphasis in the Gospel of Luke, counting the cost. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to count the cost. Now, in terms of the structure, so that's in terms of the themes, in terms of the structure, too, I was remiss last time in not pointing out a, that we've come to a pretty major transition, actually, in the flow of the narrative. That transition comes in verse 51. Now, when it, it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's, that's it. It's, um, it's not a lot, but it, it means a lot. Uh, he has completed or is on his way to having completed the course of his his teaching ministry and he has now set his face face to go to Jerusalem and that is where he is going. That moves us on to this large middle section of Luke that comes right up until the Passion itself. Well anyways this statement he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem is also the context for this last little section in Luke chapter nine. You see, it is Jesus' clear-sighted, single-minded determination to go to the place. What sort of place is it going to be? Is Jerusalem a holiday? No, it's a place of rejection, condemnation, torture, and death that awaits him. It's his determination to do those things that has been contrasted with the fuzziness and the half-heartedness of these would-be disciples that we're going to be talking about this morning. Jesus has well considered everything. He knows precisely what awaits him. He has counted this cost and he has decided to go on in the way that is going to result in his further deprivation, his rejection, his ignominy, and ultimately his death in Jerusalem in order to receive up his everlasting kingdom. He has counted that cost and he's done the cost-benefit analysis and said, I am willing now to suffer in order to receive up that which will be forever, his kingdom, his people, you and I. The would-be disciples haven't thought about it much, but if they did, they'd probably not want to go that far. And so in the, verse of, in the words of verse 62, they are not fit for the kingdom of God. Now that is a terrible statement. That is not something that you can easily pass over. Here it is lying at the end of the chapter as it is, but mainly think about that. They're not fit for the kingdom of God. What makes you, that's heaven by the way, the kingdom of God, that's heaven. What makes you unfit for heaven? Most people think, most people would say it's because you're not good enough. 
But as we've already seen more than once, it cannot be that because Jesus came to save sinners. He came not to destroy, but to bring sinners to repentance and faith and to bring them into his kingdom. So it cannot be on the basis of their merit in some intrinsic way of whether they deserve there because they're good enough. Actually, those who are not fit, those who are not suited for the kingdom are those who do not value it enough to make Christ their highest ambition. As brothers and sisters, it's, it's like the situation of some pauper, some homeless man who's on the street and some fantastically wealthy billionaire comes and says, do you, do you want a place to live? Do you want a, a mansion? In fact, I'm, I'm willing to give you a mansion in island paradise somewhere. Is that what you want? And that pauper, that homeless man says, maybe. But I like my cardboard box as well. Can I take that with Jesus says those kind of people that are double-minded, those people who are not willing to leave everything behind for the kingdom that he is giving them are not fit for it. Well, that's the title this morning, Not Fit for the Kingdom of God. And we have three points that go with it. First, putting material things above Christ. Second, putting parents above Christ. And third, putting family before Christ. These are the things that make you unfit. These are the things that disqualify you for the kingdom of heaven. Well, first, putting material things above Christ. In verse 57, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, that's pretty good. He wants to be a disciple, doesn't he? And what he says is actually a very good statement. If it were utterly sincere and well thought out and the cast had been counted, that is exactly what is expected, demanded of a Christian disciple. Do you think of the way everything is summed up in Revelation 14.3? They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That is the definition. If you want to know what a Christian is, that's the definition. These are the ones who follow Christ wherever he goes. But judging by the way that Jesus responds to this particular man, the problem is that he has not considered the cost. He's probably not all that much different than the the actual disciples, the 12 disciples. You remember it's not so long in this chapter ago that these disciples think that Jesus is going to receive an earthly kingship, an earthly kingdom. And they are jockeying for position in the cabinet. They want the honors that go along with those things. And following, when they follow Jesus, yes, they're willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes, but they think that means they're following him right into the palace. Now, the irony is, of course, he is going to a palace, isn't he? He's going into the palace of the high priest in order to be condemned at some kangaroo court. He's going into the the palace of Pilate and also of Herod, where he will likewise stand condemned and will ultimately be judged and sent to execution. And not all of them did follow him into those things, did they? And even one man who followed him as far as the outer court of that sort of palace, he himself denied Christ. But the thing is, 
If we are following Christ, that means that we do go in the places where he goes. And wherever the lamb goes is not always into decent places, not always into nice places. You're reminded of of the words at the end of the Gospel of John. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, he's speaking to Peter. When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. He's just given this man his death warrant. He said, you're going to be going places you don't want to go. And you're going to die a terrible, painful death for my sake. And he still says, follow me. Those are the words of the most loving man who ever lived. He loved that man more than you and I could possibly fathom. He hands him the death warrant. And he says, follow me. Brothers and sisters, that is what Christian discipleship is like. We must come to understand it. We have, I think, suburbanized. We have domesticated the gospel. We need to remember what Jesus says here. The places where the lamb goes, they're not always decent places. Well, Jesus responds in verse 58. He says this, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you know what? Jesus was poor. He just was poor. Not like the the least well-paid among us, nor admittedly fairly middle-class, ordinary congregation. Some of us are paid better than others. Some of us have bigger houses than others. We're not talking about that sort of comparison. He was actually poor. He was actually impoverished. He was homeless. And this is a reminder that a roof over your head is not actually among the things that God has promised to provide for his children. Food, yes, he has promised to that. And I I do not see any occasion other than, of course, the very, very intentional spirit-led fasting in the desert and other times that he might have fasted, and no, no doubt he did. Apart from that, he did not lack for food. God always provided for him, even as he provided for the prophet Elijah a long time ago. He could send the ravens to bring food, and he certainly could provide for his own son. Clothing, yes, he had clothing. That was about the only possession he had, and that was what was divided among the soldiers when they crucified him. But not a house. And if he's given you a house, then you need to be thankful for it. We should be very thankful, because that is above and beyond the minimum promises that Christ gives his people. But the larger picture in all these things, when Jesus responds that way, of course, he knows the hearts and minds of people. When he responds that way and says, look, you say you want to follow me, but look at my situation. You might just have to share in my situation if you're going to follow me. And the son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And that means that material comfort is definitely not on the list of things that are promised to the Christian in this life. Now, many of us have it. 
Many Christians have, but I'll tell you, if you look over the, va- the majority, the whole situation worldwide over the whole of, of Christian history, I don't think that that's always been the case. Far from it. You know, those disciples had just been contending about who was going to be greatest. Well, forget about greatness. Forget about honors up here of being prominent and all the rest of it and living in that palace on earth. It's not even middle class comforts that Jesus is offering you. What he's offering you, quite possibly, is a life of suffering in this world. Don't forget that. In this world. Because as you do your counts of of counting up the cost, you, you recognize, of course, that we're talking about now as opposed to an eternity. You need to think about that. Well, material comfort is definitely not on the list of things that are promised to him. But on the other hand, if you put material things, material comfort above Christ, you have disqualified yourself from the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, another thing that might disqualify you is putting parents before Christ. In verse 59, he says, and he said to another, now this is a little bit of a contrast. Previously, someone had said to him on his own initiative, hadn't thought it through, hadn't counted the cost. Now he is saying to someone else, follow me. So this is on his initiative. And that invitation, as we find out later, comes with a call to preach. You go and preach the kingdom of God. And so in this case, there's no doubt that this includes this other, this aspect of vocation in the ministry. And the man responds, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Well, it's unclear what is, what is being meant. Some people think that um, his father had already died and he was on his way home for the funeral. Um, but given what we find out in the next case, in the third point, they probably wouldn't change anything if that were, were the case. A lot of other people think, and maybe I tend to agree with them, what, what he's actually saying is not that he's already dead, but he's old. He's probably soon going to die, and I need to take care of him. And once he's dead, I'll bury him, and then then I will follow you. Well, Jesus' response is very striking. He says in verse 60, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, there are any number of amazing and striking things that come with such words. But first of all, we have to understand that unsaved people are dead. If you're not a Christian, that is your situation. We are forever thinking that unsaved people are just sort of sick and they need some help. They need to take some medicine. But no, they're, they're absolutely spiritually dead. There's no spiritual life in them. There's nothing, no part of them that can respond to the gospel. If that's your situation now, that's why you don't understand what I'm saying. If you're not a Christian, you don't understand. And what we're doing is praying that God would open your heart and mind supernaturally to do that. That you you would understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you'd put your faith in him and be saved. But it's not something that you can do on your own. It's not something that, that if it happens that you look back and say, see how wonderful I am. No, it's rather that we give glory to God, that he is giving life through his word, giving life through his word and his spirit to those who are dead spiritually. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, those who are not following me, those who are not part of my kingdom, let them take care of their own situation, but you, your priority needs to be to come preach the kingdom of God. Well, the funny thing, I've, uh, 
the interesting and difficult thing to put together with this is the reality of the, the moral law, the fifth commandment's demand that we take care of our aged parents. We have forgotten about it in this time, but Jesus makes it absolutely clear that one of the implications of honor your father and your mother is financial. It is material. It is taking care of them when they need help in their old age. And when the Pharisees, here's the interesting thing, when the Pharisees tried to pull this whole Corbin thing, do you know what I mean? Uh, the, the idea that, we, you know, um, look, you were going to receive help from me. I was going to be able to support you as I'm supposed to do. But whatever you were going to receive from me is Corbin. It is a gift to God, and I'm instead going to give it to the temple. I'm going to give it to, you know, be like those, the big-time Pharisees who throw in lots of gold coins into the treasury. And Jesus was absolutely merciless in destroying their, their hypocrisy on this issue. He lambasts them. And the question is, how now is this different? Basically, you've got, you've got some Pharisees who don't really want to help their parents. They don't love them enough to actually want to help and instead want to make a show of how much money they give to the, the temple. And then you've got someone who actually says, I, I do want to take care of my parents. What's the difference? Because there was one greater than the temple there. There was one greater than the temple. Matthew twelve six. I, I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple there. And those priorities then have to change. So Jesus is, is saying, if your choice is between doing what is right in the sight of, of God to take care of your parents and just making a show of giving money to the church, well, the choice is very clear. But if your choice is between some commitment to your parents and actually following me, the the only Savior, the only one who can bring you to life, then that choice is clear as well. Because there is one greater than the temple there. And even if it requires us leaving behind our parents, he has said... We ought to follow him. We've got to put Christ before anything else. And thirdly, that means putting family, uh, uh, if we put family before Christ, we've likewise made us disqualified from the kingdom. It says in verse 61, another one said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now again, this is starting to seem like the most reasonable thing ever. Okay, the first guy seemed to, to care about material provision, and Jesus has to say, look, look at the situation. I'm poor, you're probably going to be poor as well. The second one probably is, saying, is making an excuse for many years. He's saying, I've got an old father at home, and I need to take care of him. So I'm going to put off following you for that time. I won't be able to preach the kingdom of God at that point. But later I will. This one is only saying, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell. That just seems like common decency. It seems very reasonable, doesn't it? Let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And who is at his house? His wife, maybe? His children? That doesn't seem so terrible. That doesn't seem so crazy. Jesus says, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You know what that sounds like? Someone else, I think, had his hand to the plow. And he was called to follow 
another prophet, a great prophet, and that was the prophet Elisha. Do you remember that situation where he is plowing, he is as with the the twelfth of his oxen. His hand is quite literally on the the plow and and Elijah comes and throws his mantle over. And he knows what that means. He knows that he's been selected, he's been called to follow him and and he says, Let me first say goodbye to my family. And he's permitted to do that. He's absolutely permitted to do that. And they have a feast and they say goodbye and off they go. What's different here? One greater than Elijah is there. You see, if it's just for Elijah, then you have the benefit of saying goodbye to your family. You have that privilege. But if it's the Lord of heaven and earth, the eternal son of God, your creator, your maker, and he speaks to you and says, follow me. There is nothing that can possibly stand in that way. There is nothing that can compete for your attention and affection in that way. There is nothing that should prevent you even another moment from following the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, of course, the thing is, we don't know what's going to happen to us tomorrow. This man could journey home. We don't know where he lived. But he could meet with some end on that journey. He could come home and there would be some crisis. And he would feel a need to address that crisis. And one thing would lead to another. And he never would end up following Christ. And I think there are all too many in hell right now who have made such excuses, who have said such things, whether well-intentioned or not. You know, there's a parable later on in Luke that talks about those who are making utterly lame excuses and they're not even reasonable. These ones are just being half-hearted. They're they're not clear as to what their priorities are and they're trying to have both of these things in the same level. And Jesus is saying, that's just not possible. If you want the kingdom of God, it is here. You can have it. It is laid before you. you. If you want Christ, you can have him. Take him. Receive him. Put your faith in him. But if you want at the same time to have other things, then you're not going to get it. If some of you even at the moment are considering in your your hearts, what are the implications for my family if I were to believe in Christ, if I were to follow him, if I were to do as the word of God says? And that is your evaluation. May I tell you that that evaluation will lead you away from Christ. If you consult with what is what we say in the Bible with flesh and blood, they will tell you that there are other things that should have a higher priority. Oh, it's fine to have a polite religion. It's fine to go to church in some sort of way, but really, truly following the Lord Jesus Christ, I wouldn't recommend it. And you know what? Jesus would say, I don't recommend it either. If your priority is the situation, the things that you have in this life, if any part of the things that you have in this world are your priority, I wouldn't recommend following me either because, look, I might just lead you away from those things. There might be ways, things that, that no one can prevent that will be set in motion by you becoming a Christian disciple that will lead you away from the comforts of home. And Jesus says, if that's what your priority is, you have that. Don't be deceived. 
you can't also have me. No man can serve two masters. Let me now, in a more specific way, speak of some applications here. Well, first of all, contemporary evangelism techniques are wrong. Haven't figured that out already. So many of the ways in which clever people have figured out are the way that we should evangelize the world, they're just wrong. All the seeker-friendly sales tactics, they are wrong. You know, the the thought of Jesus speaking the words that he's just spoken here in the the end of Luke chapter 9 at some trendy churches is almost comical. You imagine him saying those things and people are saying, what is he doing? Get him out of here. That is not seeker-sensitive in the slightest. Telling them, even wanting to go and say goodbye to my family, that disqualifies you from being in the kingdom of God. Well, that doesn't sound very seeker sensitive. Let's just take again the simple act of handing someone a tract. What are we doing, young people? What were you doing, anyways, last night? As you're going around and handing out those evangelical times, which included a presentation of the gospel, what were you doing to people last night? Do you know what you're doing? You're handing them what theoretically could have been their death warrant. You could be, yes, it is true. You are also handing them a summons to life, to eternal life. But with regard to their situation in this life, you could have well been handing them a death warrant. That is certainly what you'd be doing if you were doing it in Syria or Iraq or Saudi Arabia or so forth and those kind of places. You would certainly be leading them away from their family, weren't you? You're not going to remain in your comfortable home situation. The one that I'm putting this one through the, the, the letterbox, you may not be living in that house next year. Because I'm handing you a summons to follow Christ. We need to be clear about that. Now again, if they put their faith in Christ, then they will, be, they will soon enough inherit all things. But in order to do that, it will be necessary. It may well be necessary to leave behind the things of this world. So likewise, a health and wealth gospel is obviously not true. Some people still think that if you just pray long and hard enough about something, that you always get it. If you just have faith, then your life is going to be healthy and wealthy and wonderful and all the rest of it. Brothers and sisters, it's just not true. If Jesus himself did not have it, why do you think that you're entitled to it? The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He wasn't very popular. Didn't have a lot of wealth. His life was not easy. You lack sleep sometimes? Guess what? So did he. You don't have sufficient resources for all that you'd like? Guess what? Same with he. People don't like you. Same with Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if we follow him, that is what we are signing up to. Now, I, I want to say, secondly, so, so first of all, contemporary evangelism techniques, they're, they're completely wrong. Secondly, we ought to follow him, though. Nonetheless, okay, I, I want you to understand that he, when he says to Peter, here's your death warrant, now anyways, come follow me. I want you to understand that that was a loving act. And I want you young people not to get me wrong. 
I want you to understand it was a loving and brave and right act for you to hand those evangelical times with that gospel message through those letterboxes and hand to people. That was the right thing to do. It was a loving thing because it could bring them to everlasting life. And you know that apart from that, they are living in a city set for destruction. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? A picture of Pilgrim's Progress. Those people, all of them, they're living in the city of destruction and they, if they remain there, will certainly die. We're talking about hell. We're talking about what happens in eternity. Sinners will be judged. Sinners will go to hell. And you are providing them a lifeline for it. And I'm saying to you, those who are apart from Christ, those who are not believers, follow him. That's what he's saying. His invitation goes to you. There's no one too bad for the kingdom of, of heaven. The only problem is those who are half-hearted, those who don't grab onto it. You know, there are, history is replete with examples of those who are in a situation where they could have been saved but just did not throw themselves into it. We're just a little bit half-hearted with regard to the lifeboat, a little bit half-hearted with regard to the lifeline that was handed to them. And of course, they soon enough died. When the lifeline of the gospel comes to you and Jesus says, follow, you, you just get up and follow. We do not know when we'll have another chance. Now, follow him, that certainly means things like self-denial. It means self-control. It means counter, being countercultural. You remember how when, when uh, John the Baptist was speaking to Herod, and here he was in jail, and he'd have him come and speak to him, and he was interested, and he would talk about things like self-denial and, and so forth, and the holiness of God. And he'd become very uncomfortable, and he said, go away, and I'll call you again when I have a more convenient time for you to speak. Well, will you give up things? Absolutely. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And those who are fit for the kingdom of God are the ones who do not look back. Now, we haven't spent much time on that, but here's where I think the interesting thing is of the idea of salt and that of Lot's wife. You know, just going back to our text for a moment in, in Luke 14, um, I'm sorry, uh, just going back to our text with regard to uh, verse 62, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That word fit is not a very common word actually in, in the New Testament. One of the few places, one of the small handful of places it is, is found in Luke 14 where he's talking about salt. So likewise, whoever you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is fit. It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. You see what that means? Where is this salt, this used, this spent salt going to be suitable for? In other situations, other rubbish that you might have, you might use it to fertilize your ground in the field, or you might put it in a a rubbish heap in order to become fertilizer, but this spent salt is not going to be good for either of those things. It is utterly worthless. It has no particular place, either here or there. And that's the situation of a double-minded person who is attracted to the kingdom of God but is unwilling to commit to it. You are fit neither for the world... (coughs) nor for the kingdom of heaven, and rather to be cast out. Now, that salt situation, 
you know about Lot's wife. And Jesus and others, other places will in fact tell us to re- remember Lot's wife. Because I think she is absolutely an example of the double-minded person. Who she has been called out of this world and recognizes, recognizes that this is probably a good thing. But maybe not today is the right time. And it was rather inconvenient to be pulled out of her house at this time. And there's many things back in Sodom that are attractive to Lot's wife. And she looks back longingly at what she is leaving behind. Because indeed she has a house. And it's a nice one we, more than likely. We know that Sodom was a place of great wealth. So much so as we read in our reading this morning that it attracted the, the not so good attention of the surrounding kings to come and steal all of its wealth. It was returned however. She looked back and she was turned into what? pillar of salt a pillar of salt she did not with all of her heart come after Christ but in a half hearted way with looking back longing after some other things and that's why I say thirdly don't delay how many people say I'll become a Christian but only after I've had my fun as a young person or only after I've had my children or only after I've paid off the mortgage And those decisions, each one of those delaying tactics is another way of consigning yourself to hell. Don't delay. You know, Matthew 13, 44 says that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Do you understand? It's not something that you half-heartedly think about. Sometimes you come across something and maybe online or at a store and you, you want to think about it. It's, it seems like a decent deal, but it's not all that kind of great. Well, I want you to count the cost. Jesus wants you to count the cost. Oh, don't make an impulse buy here. No, I don't mean that. But when you count the cost, understand the value of what you're getting. Understand the value of the kingdom, and it is not something to be trifled with. It is not something to take or leave. It is a pearl of great price and it is worth selling all that you have. Meaning, it is worth cacheting everything that you have in this world. It is, if necessary. Now, he does not always call us to leave everything behind, but that is always the possibility. And we have got to weigh that on one side of the scale and weigh up the pearl of great price on the other and act accordingly. Don't delay. To the Christians... I would say we cover a single-minded walk. I've mentioned Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. Or either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Lots of people try to serve two, two masters. But of course the problem is that no one, neither of them is going to like them. You can't really serve the world. You can't really serve Satan. You can't really serve mammon and Christ effectively. There's always going to be something that gets in the way of that. Those who serve mammon with a whole heart, well, they're willing to cut ethical corners. They're willing to not perform their duties to other things. They want to work on a Sunday. Do you know 
how disadvantaged you would be as an investment banker, for instance, if you were unwilling to work on, on a Sunday? Do you know how disadvantaged you'd be in various other things? Do you know how disadvantaged you and, you and Murray is in unwilling to work in, on Sunday as a, a rugby player? And if your desire, if your, your ambition is indeed to go after mammon, after the things of this world, the things that this world can give you, anything, and I don't want to be specific. Some of you say, well, I don't actually care about money so much. Actually, it's power you want. Or I don't really care about power so much. It's actually it's, it's accolades and recognition that you want or you know, any number of those kind of things. What I'm saying is, take your pick. You can have those things or you can have Christ can't have both. It's just that simple. No man can serve two masters. Either he, he will either love the one or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And Jesus is saying, as you even seek to serve mammon, you will end up despising me. And of course, he doesn't want that. Now, we know, in, and also in Mark 10, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. And they had. And Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So let me not forget to say that. Let me not forget to say that, but one thing you're going to get if you're considering what, you, what the situation of being a Christian is, yes, you may have to leave everything that you currently have behind, but even in this life you will receive other mothers and fathers, other brothers and sisters, other sons and daughters, and, and this room is filled with them. Some of you are not around your earthly family. Or do you have your spiritual family here with you? And in the world to come, you receive eternal life. Well, finally, I would say this. Fifthly, do not be discouraged if things are hard. You know, in the Marine Corps, part of our routine way of dealing with the well, first the recruits at Paris Island and then later on the Marines, is to remind them, this is what you ask for. No one ever hides from people the reality that the Marine Corps is a difficult life. Um, recruiters are taught to, to, to actually go in the opposite direction and point out just how hard it is. When we're doing PT, we say, this is what you ask for. Brothers and sisters, I don't know who, brought, who recruited you for the kingdom. For some of you, it was me. But for, it was, for others, it was somebody else. I hope they got around to telling you some of the things that I've just mentioned. But if not, and you are surprised that your life is hard, let me, let me help you out. It's supposed to be. This is what you signed up to when you became a Christian. Even in the midst of Jesus counterbalancing all that you're going to miss out in this world. He, and he's saying, well, but you are going to get a church. You are going to get a wonderful spiritual family. Even in the midst of it, he says, with persecutions. Brothers and sisters, it is hard. It is supposed to be. It is part of the deal in this life. You know why? Among other things, 
It's going to make you long for heaven. If this world were really as wonderful as we'd like it to be and sometimes in our bad moments try to set as if that were the great priority, then we wouldn't want heaven. And God in his own good purposes then brings us trials, brings us difficulties, brings us persecutions to wean us away from this world and to ready us for the next. Please do not be discouraged that things are hard. And I want you to know as well, don't be discouraged, but also as part of that, don't think that God is absent in these hard things because God is present in them. Again, the whole point is not to say that Jesus had it nice. He's, he's, not, he's not in his chariot, in his gold and his attendance and his, his mansion and all the rest of it and pointing out to others, you're going to have to leave everything behind. He doesn't say that. He says, no, I, you're going to be like me. If you follow me, you're going to be where I am, you see. He will be with you in all of your difficulties and trials and tribulations. That's a wonderful, beautiful picture in Daniel, you remember in the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was astonished. Why was he astonished? Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of fire? He wasn't so astonished that they were still alive. I would be astonished that they were still alive. But the main thing was that there's now four. They answered and said, true, king. Yeah, we, we put three in there. Look, I see four men loose. Walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. He's there walking in the furnace with him. Don't be discouraged when things are hard. When you're following Jesus, you will be where he is, and he will be with you. And if he sends you into the furnace, then he will be with you, even there. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you have set before us a pearl of great price, and it is worth absolutely anything that we could pay for it. We know, Lord, in fact, there is nothing that we could, in fact, do to merit or pay for such a great gift. You offer it to us freely, and it is ours for the asking in faith. But, Lord, we must turn away from other things. We must be willing to give up on many things, many comforts, many assurances of this world, many things that we might take for granted. And Lord, how we pray that we'd be very clear about this, that we'd truly count the cost, and that those who are considering the Christian faith would understand what it is that they're signing up to. And Lord, we know the reason why you can still call us to follow you is because you know that this world and everything in it will soon enough be burnt up, and we along with it. But you have provided a way of escape. You have set before us the possibility of the kingdom of heaven. And how we pray, Lord, that we with a single-minded determination, that our great ambition truly would be to follow after you, to go where you are, where no matter where the Lamb takes us. And we are thankful, Lord, to know that even if you bring us into the furnace, that you will be with us. How we pray, Lord, that we would not delay. And how we pray, Lord, that our walk would be utterly single-minded and that we would never seek to serve two masters but you only. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We turn now to the sacrament of covenant baptism.
Baptism is not a private affair. It is a visible sign that is given to the community of those professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the visible church. And therefore, it is done publicly. And so I would at this time exhort you to remember and to consider the meaning of your own baptism as we proceed with this one. What is baptism? According to the Westminster Standards, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. It does not by itself regenerate or work automatically, but rather it is a sign and a seal of that which must be received by faith. Now, to whom is baptism to be administered? Again, baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church, and it is a sign of being in the visible church, until they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. When God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis seventeen seven, he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. It is therefore the sign and seal of the covenant is given to the infant children of believers as their engagement to be the Lord's. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this wonderful sacrament of baptism, how we pray, Lord, that we would all both understand what is being signed and signified, and how, Lord, we who have been baptized would remember our own baptisms, that we would improve them, that those who have not yet embraced what is shown to us in baptism would do so, and those who are Christians would recall all that is meant by these things of the Holy Spirit being bestowed of the promise of being washed from our sins and being made clean. That, Lord, indeed, we receive these things in faith. We pray, Lord, that you'd enable us to rightly administer this baptism. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.